0: Thank you. Hello, and thank you for joining me on Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. I'm Jackie Miller. The issue of spousal support can be very complicated. I have John Summers joining me on this episode. He is a family law attorney with the Los Angeles firm of Summers, Levine, and Kretzmer. John is one of the most highly revered, well-respected family law attorneys in the Los Angeles area, and he is here to help us make sense of this complex topic. Listen in to get an education from one of the best in the business. Hello, John. Summers, I'm so happy to finally have you on Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. Thanks for joining me.
1: I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Awesome. I know we've been trying to do this for a while. So happy to have you here. My issue with having you come on was deciding what topic to do, which is why I let you choose.
1: (laughs) I know. So there are so many topics and we've talked about a lot of different topics before and I chose spousal support this time because I just recently finished a trial on the issue of spousal support. And so it's all fresh in my mind and we can awesome. probably go into a little more depth than I would on some other topic.
0: Awesome. And you know, cause you know, I, I have all different kinds of professionals on this podcast. And so once in a while it will pop up in a conversation, but doing a deep dive is amazing because it's freaking confusing yeah. and there's so many components to it. I mean, I went through it. I'm I'm still confused, but um, I just wanted to tell people a little bit about you because you are in the Los Angeles area and your firm is Summers Levine Kretzmer. Um, yep. SLK and, and the website, you guys, just so you know, if you want to rush over to slkfamilylaw.com, that's where you can um, find more about John and his practice. You guys have like eight or nine t- attorneys? We
1: have eight attorneys okay. and okay. we only practice family law. Okay. Um, So we are in the thick of it in Los Angeles. Actually.
0: Yes, you are. And you have such an amazing reputation which is why I've been hunting you down for so long. But um, I just to tell people you have not only do you have, you know, over 30 years experience, you're just very highly regarded in the complexities of child custody, division of assets, preservation of wealth. You know, you have many accolades. I can go on and on about been a super lawyer since 2006, co-chair of family law section, Beverly Hills Bar Association. But the thing about you, John, is that I've got to sort of sit back and watch some of your cases. And one of the things that, I love and it seems like it's so simple and it should happen in every attorney client relationship and I'm shocked that it doesn't is you go straight to strategy right. like what it does I think is it makes people feel like they're on the offense because that's the number one complaint I get just so you know yeah. as a coach is I feel like we're always on defense Jackie and I, I don't know what to do
1: yeah so strategy is my big thing and and planning ahead I think is the most important in dealing with the family law matter and not only does that empower your my client y- y- you start to develop develop theories and things that you then want to Present And it also manages my client's expectations, because if they come across and they say, well, what about this? I have to tell them that in a court of law, you probably will lose. So let's kind of focus more on a different strategy that I would hope that you would win. And if you have a losing strategy, I'd let you know that. And maybe there's ways that you could settle things because you would likely lose and it would cost you attorney's fees and things like that. So I usually try to create a strategy from the get-go that everyone can be on board with and understand and then we take it from there. And um, developing that strategy is potentially some of the hardest part of my you know job and making sure that the client understands and getting them to agree sometimes begrudgingly, but hopefully it works and, and being in communication with the client all the time.
0: Yeah, that absolutely. Well, and that, and that's the other thing I hear you know, there's no communication. I don't know what's going on. Right. So I know you guys are really good at that at your firm as well. So anyway, that that's just something that I've always noticed about how you practice that I've had a lot of respect to you for. And um, and so why I, I want you on here today. So I'm very happy we're going to go into this deep dive about spousal support. And so why don't we just kick this off? Like, because the first thing that people usually come up against is the temporary support. So what's the temporary okay. versus the, the so, permanent?
1: So temporary support is the support that you need in order to live until your case is over. So it's the temporary phase. And then when you settle your case or you go to trial on your case on the issue of spousal support, that would then be the permanent support. So temporary support is is intended to maintain the status quo. I know that there isn't a lot of money sometimes, but we need to come up with some sort of number to maintain the status quo, to get you through this phase of your divorce. That is done a lot easier than a permanent support order. There's uh, less factors to really consider. However, the judge needs to come up with a number or the parties need to come up with a number. And there is potentially fighting on that issue um, because determining what someone's ability to pay takes on many factors. For instance, uh, someone owns a business and doesn't get regular salaries. It's you know, or gets a bonus at the end of the year that is is quite sizable. There's all these different things. But generally speaking, a judge would take these numbers, um, whatever he ultimately determines, put it in a computer program, and spit out a number for temporary support. Unfortunately, for permanent support, the court can't do that. They're not allowed to use a computer program. They're required to use a bunch of factors that are completely discretionary, set forth in the family code, and and kind of come up with some sort of way of determining what the support should be. And that's something that is far more difficult and uh, more esoteric and more discretionary mm-hmm. for the court.
0: And that's yeah. kind of- Yeah. It. And it's there are 14 factors, is that correct? There's about 14 factors. In California- factors. Yeah, which I mean, I look back at my own case and yes, you know, a number of those, you know, could have worked in my benefit. But at the same time, it's almost like there's so many factors, some of them seem contradictory. So you do yeah. need a very, a very good attorney. Obviously, if your case is even somewhat complicated to navigate through these to get you the best deal they can. Yeah.
1: So the factors, um, some of them apply some and some apply to others. So every factor is applicable to whatever facts that you have in your case. But some of the ones that really that I'd like to talk about, I guess, because some of them deal with criminal actions and abuse, okay. and we can always go into the issue of domestic violence at another time or something. So yes, I'm not going to go into that right now. But some of the ones that really are in use every single day on all of these cases are the ones like the age of the parties. And that that's important because it deals with the ability of someone to work. Yes. And then we deal with the income and assets and liabilities of the parties. And then we deal with the whole thing about the standard of marriage enjoyed by the parties during their marriage. So those are the factors that I think are very esoteric and require a deep dive in order to understand it. For instance, the age Age of the parties is an important factor because the court requires everyone to at least try to become self-supporting within a reasonable period of time.
0: Right. And
1: if someone is getting a divorce and they're in their 30s, there is a greater opportunity for someone to become self-supporting than if someone is getting a divorce at 65. Yep. And so the obligation is to become self supporting becomes a lot more difficult as you get older. And it also becomes more difficult if the person requesting the support was a homemaker or taking care of the children or taking care of a a, a parent or something like that. So um, it's a lot harder to require an older person to become self-supporting when they hadn't been self-supporting for 30 years, for instance.
0: Right, right.
1: That becomes a, a factor. And the question then becomes is, should the court or should the parties agree to stipulate to a number, even though that party isn't even earning anything.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that was That's what we call an imputation of income. So should the person who hasn't been working for a while or be, be imputed with minimum wage? So minimum right. wage now is about $2,600 a month. And that question um, should be dealt with with your attorney because it may not even matter if your husband or wife or the supporting party is making millions of dollars, right. imputing someone with $2,600 wouldn't really matter, right? Yeah. So
0: don't, don't stress out over that. Don't do the stress numbers first, out,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. If you're being imputed with income. And also it doesn't matter if uh, the other side wants you to go to, on a vocational examination to determine the, the qualifications or the opportunities that you would have if you were to go into the workforce, which you hadn't been going into for a
0: while. Thanks for bringing that up because I was just going to mention that. That And if you don't know what that is, it's, um. so you've been a stay at home mom and, you know, haven't worked in 15 years, but you have a bachelor's in you know business. Your ex may want you to go to a vocational assessment, and someone, a professional, will decide how much you're capable of making, and then that's what your ex will use to say, well, he or she's able to make this much, and so they'll impute you with that amount. Correct? And then, then the question, correctly.
1: yes, that's exactly what it is. It's a discovery tool by one party against the other party to ascertain what the ability and opportunity you have to work, and they come up with various vocations and they come up with with jobs uh, that are job openings. It's an expert and the expert would testify as to whether you're qualified and how much that job uh, would provide for you in terms of income.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the judge doesn't have to buy that. OK. And you would have your lawyer do his or her job in determining whether that expert has the knowledge and expertise to do that and to make those those decisions. Sure.
0: And this comment may be a little premature, but this is just one reason I always see in many to try to keep it out of court. I don't want your position on this because the more you can just negotiate all of these factors, because there's so many, I feel like you have more power. What do you think about that? Well,
1: well, first of all, settling is always much more powerful because you know exactly what you're getting. Yeah. Um, sometimes you can't. Right. But it, the important thing to understand is just because you make $50,000 a year or just because they want to impute 50000 thousand dollars a year to you doesn't necessarily mean that that's a dollar for dollar reduction in your spousal support.
0: Okay. But you're not
1: necessarily going to get fifty thousand dollars less. It just means that that would be added to your net spendable income in determining what is the best number that should be. Used. Okay.
0: That's really good to know. I, I thought it was dollar for dollar. So that's good. To it know. doesn't
1: necessarily have to be. And the, the, the interesting part about all of this is that Because of all of these factors, the court looks at everything. So it doesn't just look at what the income is. The court looks at all these other factors, including this, as I said, the standard of living during marriage and the the liabilities that you have and your expenses and things of that nature. It's just one factor of a bunch of factors that the court takes into
0: account. Okay. And we'll get into more. And I, I just always love to give people a heads up if they haven't heard terms. So like MSOL is one of those terms that comes rushing out at you the second you file and it means marital standard of living um, because I know we get bogged down as lay people, you know, in the new terms and sometimes don't know what all of these are. So to that point, that is a reason your attorney pretty much right off the bat is going to need a lot of financial information from you, correct? Or at least like expenses.
1: Yeah, so we initially ask every one of our clients, all of our clients, to provide us with a list of their expenses, their expenses that existed during their marriage um, because we want to get an idea of what their lifestyle was invariably um, and not in every case but once you start going through a divorce you start feeling a little bit of a pinch um, and you can't spend what you used to spend when you were married because of course two households is twice as expensive as one household Mm -hmm. so now we are faced with what do we do and on the temporary phase uh, you're just going to get a number that a court or you are going to decide on the temporary basis but when you look at the lifestyle during marriage, which is the MSOL that you were talking about, you have to go back potentially three to five years to see what your expenses are, and also what your income was, because income fluctuates from year to year, if you're not just a salaried employee. And that's a whole nother issue that we'll probably touch on. But if you look at the marital standard of living, you can look at your income from your tax returns, and you ultimately come up with a number that you and your spouse have spent based upon the income that you have received. Okay. And- you could potentially divide that by 50%. Then there become there comes an issue with respect to your housing expense because your marital lifestyle is based upon where you lived and the housing expense that you incurred. Mm-hmm. Both of you are entitled to that housing expense because you both lived in that house. Sure. So the fight becomes what the actual marital standard of living is. And that's a whole battle in and of itself, right? Right.
0: Oh, um, yes. It is. <laughs>
1: yeah. But you, with a... With <laughs> with a, an appropriate forensic accountant you can kind of come up with a general idea based upon your income tax returns what your expenses were basically you don't you can't really exceed your income on your tax returns but of course you can because right. there's often other things that aren't reported on your tax returns perks sure and- that's
0: a good point about the forensic accountant because i have seen you know they are very deliberate specific analysis on a marital standard of living that a forensic accountant runs considering all those factors, like you said. So they actually churn out a report. that is Right, they
1: turn out a report um, and they look at the income tax-based analysis and it's a very intricate report. Mm -hmm. The other way that a forensic accountant does it is they take all of your bank statements and credit card statements and they plow through every expenditure that you've made in the last three to five years and they categorize it for every expenditure and then all kids' expenditures and then they allocate what those expenditures Expenditures are for? Are they for housing? Are they for you and your husband or wife? Is it for your children? For instance, there's private school and extracurricular activities that are for um, your children. And then they categorize it and then they they run a percentage. For instance, they'll say your children's expenses are should be allocated 26%, and you and your spouse should be allocated with the balance. And so they'll and then they'll allocate the housing expense separately and so that becomes your marital standard of living which is one of the 14 components of the family code to determine permanent spousal support
0: okay and generally going... just one oh, more okay. thing yeah
1: if the spousal support ordered by the court or d- determined by stipulation or agreement of the parties you shouldn't be awarded more than the marital standard of living that's not probably the appropriate number to use so so if right. you say your marital standard of living is $15,000 and or you're requesting $20,000, I would have to say to you, but the numbers don't support a $20,000 number. I'm, I know that that's what you need to live, but what you were living on during the marriage was fifteen, dollars mm-hmm. um, And that's pretty much the limit of what you would be entitled to.
0: That's really good to know. And I wanted to go back a little bit to like the kind of the imputation of income. You had sent a bullet point that I was interested in talking about the ability to work in light of the need to take care of children. What did you mean about that? Because I'm sure that would be an interesting point for this audience.
1: Because there's such wide discretion by the court in determining what the income should be of someone who is requesting support, a determination has to be made as to whether you have the ability to work full time, whether you can, uh, whether the court should impute income to you. If you have very, very young children, for instance, and if a court requires you to go back to work, which it would be more of an imputation of income, then wouldn't you require someone to help take care of your child? And if that's the case, then your spouse would likely be required to pay for half of it. But if your children are of middle school or high school age or elementary school age, for that matter, where there is a definite, you know, where school begins and school ends and where you could work potentially a full-time job, a court would no matter the fact that you have children would impute income to you, or you would be required to at least go out and see what the ability is sure. for you to get a job and become self-supporting.
0: And can I make a comment about that? Because I always feel that like in all through divorce, like the lack of control, especially if you're in this system where you feel like you have no control. You go into this vocational assessment and you have someone say, hey, according to your you know, uh, credentials and education here, I think you would be a great um event planner. And it looks like you could work between, uh, you know, when you drop the kids off at eight in the morning and pick them up at two in the afternoon, and then you can put them in the daycare across the street. I know where your kids go to that middle school. And it's sort of shocking hearing this stranger tell you how you can live your life and what job you're going to get. And my point is, John, that if you can take that control and go try to find something on your own that you like without hearing this, is that, is that good advice? To just sort of take the bull by the horns
1: certainly we always encourage our clients to make the effort to become self-supporting and find the job that they want to do and we will do everything we can to give you the opportunity to spend that time to do that and i actually believe that a court a reasonable court would would not You know, bring down the gavel on you if you say, I need six months to figure out what I'm going to do, or potentially um, go to a vocational school or go to finish your education. A court would jump on that and say, I will absolutely give you the opportunity to do that in light of what, you know, what you were doing during the course of your marriage. But certainly, on the other hand, if someone was working throughout the marriage and was also raising children, And then the divorce comes and quits their job and says, I can't work. I have to take care of my children. Of course, the judge is going to say, no, 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 you're not going to go ahead and do that. You need to be imputed with the job that you were previously working at. The games can go both ways, right?
0: Yes, they can. Yes, that's the reality. Absolutely, it
1: is the reality. So,
0: speaking of shenanigans and games that can be played on both sides, I have seen way too many times where the earning spouse will quit or just do something spiteful. And how does the judge look at that? Like, oops, sorry, I you know didn't like that job anymore, so I'm going to go look for another one. So I'm unemployed right now. Can't pay you.
1: Right, and then what they do is often because they. They have savings. They just utilize all of the savings, which the parties built up during the course of their marriage and say, I quit my job because I just can't do it anymore. I'm so stressed out. Or I now am taking care of the children 50% of the time, so I can't go and work because I have to pick up the children and so on and so forth. Right. The court is going to likely impute income to that spouse in the amount that that spouse was making before okay. he or she quit. But it is you know, it is a fight, and but you have to present your case and strategize in advance. And hopefully the court's going to say, no, I'm not doing that.
0: And that is why, just the heads up for people to know, to try to get your ducks in a row in terms of gathering maybe your financial information and then having that strategy with your attorney, because these guys do, you know, even though they're not quote, supposed to, or women as well, I have, I have same thing. I have clients on both sides and they will cut them off immediately, you know, the second they file or, some right. so no, they're not supposed to do these things, but if you have a plan in place and attorney ready to go and your financials right. in order, you're going to shorten that shenanigan time
1: you know, we do have to manage that, but we we will look at everything and kind of have a come to Jesus moment on that.
0: And what about like on the debt side? Cause we, we're, we always look at like dividing assets and I know we're kind of getting more into settlement than we are spousal support, but I know you had also mentioned looking at like credit card debt, et cetera. How does that factor in? I'm going to
1: bring it back to spousal support. So okay, one of the yeah. forty three twenty factors is the assets and liabilities of the parties as part of the settlement and and, and determining what permanent support is. And so if, in fact, someone is going to assume a significant amount of that community property debt, that's something that needs to be taken into consideration as one of the factors in determining permanent spousal support, because it provides The paying spouse with less available money because they have to service the debt to pay the spousal support. So it does play into spousal support. Yeah. And also, Oftentimes, um, the parties negotiate that the wealthier spouse pays all of the private school tuition because both parties find that it's in the best interest of their children to keep the children in private school. Well, that is an obligation of the parties that one party is paying on behalf of both of them. And so that can be taken into consideration by a court to determine what the spousal support should be. Does okay. that make sense?
0: Yep, sure does. And then what about retirement benefits? How does how do those factor in?
1: So this is this is based on a case that I just had, but there's a policy in this state that you want to maximize your retirement benefits. So, you have them when you retire. That's the general goal. But when you turn 60 or 62 or 59 and a half for IRAs, you have the right to pull out retirement benefits without penalty. I don't know if everyone knows, but when you hit 73, you're required to pull out benefits, a required minimum distribution. The yeah, IRAs. it's like
0: mandatory that.
1: Mandatory distribution, right? Recently, in a case, I represented the wife who was seeking support, and the husband's position was that she was 61 years old. She should be required to pull out Her retirement benefits that was awarded to her in the divorce. But this woman was 61 years old, but she was working. Um, She had a job and she had no intention of retiring at any time soon. And in fact, she was a 30-year marriage and she hadn't even been working during the marriage. And immediately upon separation, she went out and got a job. She loves her job and she's not retiring. And she's fortunate to have that job. Awesome. And then she hears that he's requiring her to trade her IRA funds that she got in the divorce and require her to annuitize them and pull them out, pay tax on them. And then she would have zero retirement by the time she turns 84. There is a case which is very unclear. It gives the court great discretion to determine whether a party should be withdrawing uh, money on a monthly Monthly basis in the ter- in the form of an annuity, and in this particular case, our judge decided no. She was not retired. She was working. She had no intention of retiring, and to force her to annuitize her IRA was not appropriate and not part of the public policy of the state to maximize your retirement benefits so they're there when you retire. The interesting thing was we were going through this trial, and the judge stopped everyone and said to the accountant who was... In favor of this annuity, as she said to the judge, said to the accountant, What happens if she's alive at 84? How she doesn't have any more retirement funds
0: in silence?
1: (laughs) Well, there was silence because (laughs) I was probably going to ask that question if she didn't,
0: right? right? Right,
1: right. Um, but she says, Oh, well, then she could go in and ask him for more support when she's 84. And the judge was like, Looked at her and said, like she's going to go in after 20 some odd years and ask him for support. He's probably retired by then anyway.
0: Right. So you want yeah. me to rule on creating a problem yeah. for this woman that we're going to have to go back and fix later.
1: Right. 20 years later, she has to go in and say, oh, I don't have any more money because this, this person required me to take pull out all my money and live on it.
0: And now he's dead, by the way. Right.
1: And now he's dead. Exactly. <laughs> It's not
0: it's so funny, but it's crazy, which we often uh, laugh on this podcast because things are so ridiculous and they're not funny that they're, they're funny. They become funny. So <laughs> now he's dead. Oh, that's, that's, that's it's a good crazy. one. Thank you for sharing I that. Mean,
1: we, were, we actually had, and it was a lot of work in that trial, but we had a lot of fun because the positions taken by the other side were so, were so ridiculous.
0: I bet that they're fun though, because that's also a unique situation. It sounds, like, right. uh, you know, that I've never heard of. I'm sure you've never come across before. But so and so, can I boil this down? Uh, because just to make sure I'm not missing it, so he wanted her to start pulling her retirement out basically now, so he could reduce his support. Is that the bottom line? Yes. Okay. Okay. I'm just making. And the guy know. was
1: making a million uh, between a million and two million dollars a year, and yeah. she was, you know, making less than a hundred thousand dollars a year in her new job. And, and so he's like, oh, no, she doesn't need it because while I continue to grow my retirement and grow my savings, she should be required to use up all of her retirement and Deplete. all of her savings to live during the rest of her life. Yeah.
0: And also seems to me where, where I would think I would have fun. This would be like brain candy, too, <laughs> from a family law perspective is it's like you want to come back in and tell her what to do with assets that were awarded her in the mirror. Like it's now none of your business. <laughs> I mean, as far right.
1: as I so that brings me to the to another point, which is okay good. Do you receive a bunch of financial accounts and a bunch of money um, in your divorce. And are you required to maximize the rate of return on those investments and which would provide you with income, which the court can look at as part of your total income package when determining oh. what the spousal support should be? Okay. So for instance, you have a $10 million community property financial account and each spouse gets $5 million, Mm -hmm.
0: right?
1: If she sticks it in her checking account and earns 0.01%, she's not maximizing that $5 million. Okay. If she gets a broker and they invest the money in non-producing assets you know, that don't derive interest or dividends, can that party claim, oh, I don't have, I'm not making any money off of my $5 million. And the answer is no, not really. You have an obligation to conservatively invest those proceeds in something that would generate Some money. So oftentimes, what we do is say, you know, you can invest however you want, but we're going to run a rate of return on that $5 million um, at the rate of 3% or 4%. Okay. That 3% or 4% will be added to your total income in order to determine what supports you.
0: Okay. And so I'm going to give actually a specific example because I think I got, I got this, but I have a client. So there's, has a million dollars and she's chosen to, you know, have a financial advisor put it into accounts that do generate dividends. And she lives off, you know, an extra 5,500, you know, a month that it generates. But if she just had that sitting in her checking account and then say, maybe went back in and, and wanted more spousal support are you saying like they could go, well, wait a minute, the million bucks she has right now, she's not maximizing on it. She's not making enough. So should she be sort of imputed with the um, like, is that kind of of on the right track?
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. So you're telling me that someone has an investment account in which she's receiving $5,500 a month. But if that person invested it in a, it didn't invest it and put it in a savings account or a checking account, earning something less than a reasonable rate of return, a court could say, I'm going to impute 3, 3. 3 3.3% or something like that.
0: Wow. That is so good to know.
1: Right. Because it does make sense. Yeah. And then the question then becomes, and I'm just going to go off on a tangent. What if you take that million dollars, which you could have invested or, or, or obtained a reasonable rate of return and you buy yourself a house. Now you don't have that million dollars. The court, could, if your lifestyle was that you always lived in a house and you use that money to buy a house, I don't think the court's going to say very much to you. Okay. Okay. If you, you already have a house and then you take that money and you buy another house... The court could look at that uh, at your assets, which is another factor of the forty-three twenty factors, mm-hmm. spousal support uh, factors. I'm considering this in my discretionary decision to to award you support. Like, I'll take that into consideration, right? Okay. Yeah. So,
0: no, thank you for that example. Those are exactly what people, you know, what I mean, need right. to know and you know on the flip side of the whole like how you treat your money and if you're earning money on it and basically being smart about it i you know, obviously i'm not an accountant and i just tell people what i see but i said you know when you're brainstorming with your um attorney on settlement do consider things you may not know that when you get this chunk of money from your assets it is a possibility that you can have some other income and lo- live off it because I know I think people just look at what am I going to get every month what am I going to get every right. month and they there there are so many other moving parts and other ways that you can you right. know get money based off your your settlements but so. I
1: mean we work with financial advisors all the time to help our clients. Yeah. maximize and, and do what they need to do in order to be able to live. I yeah, want to touch please. on the issue of, of bonus income.
0: Yes, please. Um, and the whole Osler Smith thing too. The whole yes. Osler,
1: yeah, the whole Osler Smith thing. A lot of times people, even if they own businesses, they get distributions or If you're a salaried employee, you get a bonus at the end of the year, or you get a bonus based upon whatever commissions that you receive or anything extra above and beyond your base salary. The court often takes a look at what your base salary is and determines what the support should be using all of these factors, but they use the base as one of the party's income. And then spousal support is paid on that based upon a percentage. And usually it's consistent with the kind of percentage of the net spendables of the parties and what the support is, but it's anywhere around 18 to 25%. If you receive a commission, you could receive them quarterly, you can agree or the court can order the recipient of the commission to pay a percentage, say 18% or 20% to the spouse as in for additional spousal support up to a cap, which is consistent with the marital standard of living, meaning the party is starting to receive far more than that, than what they were receiving during the marriage, there should be a cap what ah. that percentage should be. Okay. Right? So if
0: they had $200,000 bonus every year for the last six, seven years, and then they start making $700,000 bonus, you, they really only need to pay up to what the marital standard. Of right. Was so there would be that. a
1: cap. There would be a cap on the amount paid on that bonus.
0: Okay, but you know, eighteen
1: to twenty percent up until you hit that cap, and then you don't.
0: And I think people need to know this based on how your earning spouse is earning, because again, let me see if I'm saying this right. You, you tell me. If your spouse has a salary of $200,000 a year, but they're making a $500,000 bonus, your monthly spouse's support will be based off the $200,000. Is that correct? And then you, you wait, and as their bonuses come in, you'll get a percentage of that?
1: Yeah. So, you know, you can do it a lot of different ways. <laughs> right. But the problem that you have. In not waiting, meaning that the paying spouse, the payor spouse has to pay spousal support above the 200,000 in anticipation of a bonus later, is not fair either.
0: Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So
1: both parties have to wait for their money as and when it comes in. That's okay. the general.
0: Thing. Right. No, the parties get the money as the money comes. But I think that that is such a good point to point out that the earning spouse, if they earn in that type of structure, because I think people are so used to looking at annual salary, $750,000 a year. So or don't we just divide that by, you know, whatever I mean, do the right. calculation based off that, but that's no, you, you got to look at what the salary is and then the bonus. So hence this whole conversation. By the, by the same
1: token if you're receiving quarterly bonuses or commissions, then you should be paid shortly after receipt of each one and not have to wait till the end of the year. Why should the payor spouse collect all of this money and then only pay you in
0: the so, year? And I've seen it, right. And so usually the verbiage is something like within 10 days of receiving the bonus then. Right, plus the... all
1: documentation to prove that that's what you received, so on a...
0: Okay, so you did have a case study. that Have we talked about that yet? Oh, so I, an I example? talked a little
1: bit about it. It was- where the husband was making by contract a million dollars as a base and he had the opportunity to make uh, another million dollars for a total of two million dollars. The wife um, just recently got a job and she's making under a hundred thousand dollars and she received, let's assume she received four million dollars in a financial account and four million dollars in a retirement account. Okay. The husband says she can support herself on the income on and on the assets that she receives. And so I don't need to pay any spouses support. Wife says, we sold our family residence in an affluent part of town. We lived a very, very affluent lifestyle. All of our children went to private schools, private colleges. We gave to charity. We were on boards. We traveled traveled and had a vacation home. And this was our lifestyle and my salary and whatever percentage rate of return on my financial account is not enough to maintain my marital standard of living, but it would if he paid me spousal support. So we went to trial on it for four days and talked about marital standard of living, talked about housing expense, talked about vacation homes and lifestyle. And and my request was approximately $17,000 a month in spousal support that he should pay. His request was zero. And the court ultimately found, like I discussed, that she, she's not going to annuitize her, her retirement benefits. She's going to run a rate of return on her investments, and like we talked about. Mm-hmm. She's going to receive her, her salary and she's going to receive $17,000 a month. And that was enough for her to maintain her lifestyle, which in included her ability to continue to save which was an important factor that the judge stated that that was part of their lifestyle savings and investing mm-hmm. and a smith osler on his on his one million dollar bonus discretionary bonus we got a 22 percent percentage awarded
0: um, of his of his bonus and so
1: on a million dollars she would get two hundred and twenty thousand dollars of an additional support which she could then use to save and invest which was part of their as i said part of their lifestyle so it was a it was a it was a fun case. It was a hard case because it involved a lot of financial and uh, forensic accountant accounting schedules mm-hmm. that, that we had to really pay attention to, and the judge had to pay attention to. And it was very rewarding when the judge ultimately said, "You're not going to be able to get away with paying zero in spousal support after a 30 year marriage." Right, <laughs> $2 million dollars. Right,
0: right, uh, right. We have to take a conversation offline. off so of Other personal questions for you, but okay. um, the, I. <laughs> thank you so much for that example, because yeah. just all these real life examples are so useful. And that is why I love you, John Summers, because right. I have been you know, sitting backseat watching some other cases that are very com- complicated custody, domestic violence cases, right. with your example of this very complicated financial case. And I've seen attorneys that are good at custody and attorneys that are good at financial, but I honestly just have to give huge kudos to you and your firm, because you guys have tackled all of those. And if you have a high net worth divorce, please contact John's firm because you guys are so good at it and just, you know, using all those factors in your strategy. Like I said, again, so that's why I'm just, I'm so happy to have you on today. Thank you. It was fun.
1: Thank you.
0: Yeah. And I agree. You do need to come back on many issues. You know, like I said, maybe domestic violence and, and restraining orders and custody. Also, I would love to have you and uh, your partner, Mike Kretzmer, because he's minors counsel. Is that right? Uh, That is another issue that comes up all the time with clients. And it's another confusing issue. issue. So I'd love to have you guys on to talk about Excellent. that as well. Great. All right. All right. Thank you so much, John. And uh, hopefully I'll talk to you soon. I hope so. Okay. bye